Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the DGA website at dga.org and hover over the Craft tab to watch or listen to hours of content such as past episodes of The Director's Cut, videos of the Guild's 75th anniversary celebration, and long-form interviews from our visual history program. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Alison Chernick's new documentary, Itzchak. The film follows celebrated violinist Itzchak Perlman, looking beyond his performances to see the polio survivor whose parents emigrated from Poland to Israel, and the young man who struggled to be taken seriously as a music student when schools only saw his disability. Itzchak himself is funny, irreverent, and self-deprecating, and unspools his life story in conversations with masterful musicians family and friends, and most endearingly, his devoted wife of 50 years. Itzchak was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Itzchak, Ms. Chernick's filmography includes the documentary feature Jackson Pollock, Blue Poles. Following the screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Chernick spoke with director Robert Whitey about filming Itzhak. During their conversation, Ms. Chernick discusses the nine-month editing process, the technical concerns of shooting a verite documentary for a film deeply involved with music, and the importance of relying on one's instincts when shooting a documentary. I'm Bob. This is Allison, in case... You haven't figured that out. I, I, first of all, congratulations. What a wonderful film. Thank you. Um, I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. Uh, when my, my wife and I watched this together, and I turned to her afterwards, and I said, aren't you glad you're a Jew? And she said, yeah, I am. So thank you for that. Um, so this isn't your first feature, but you've, you've done, you have two other features. You've done a lot of short subjects, and it's been a while since your last feature. You've done a number of short films. So tell me how you landed on Itzhak Perlman as your subject and how you got it going. Yeah, someone actually came to me and um, asked me if I wanted to make it. Um, and I knew who he was and I was a fan of his work, but uh, of his music especially. And um, so I said, well, let's set up a meeting with him. So I went over to his house and I met him and Toby, fell in love with them, of course. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, uh, so what do you know about classical music? And I said to him, well, what do you know about filmmaking? <laughs> and, um, and then I found out later on that, like a couple days later, he called the one person he knew in the film industry, which was Steven Spielberg. And um, Steven looked through my work and gave him the uh, green light, said that she's the right person to do the film. So then about two weeks later, they called me. And they didn't tell me the story for like six months. Um, no. And it became about raising the money. Oh, want to tell us a little bit about that? Because um, we're all trying to do the same thing. Right? First, we had a commission, and then uh, I started to apply for some grants. We got funding from National Endowment for Humanities, and then I went over to PBS and showed him some footage, uh, Michael Cantor from American Masters, and he came on board as co-producers. 
And there were a, a few foundation grants that were listed at the end of the credits. So was there, uh, were there other pieces coming in from other sources? Yeah, the only one that we really applied for was NEH. And then um, through word of mouth, I was able to find some other financing, Paul Singer and a couple others. When approaching this subject, especially when you have a subject who is living, there are a number of approaches you can take to documentary filmmaking. You could have done a conventional talking heads sort of tribute with voiceover narration, that sort of thing. But you went with sort of verite, day in the life or year in the life, which of course, because he's living and performing and all that, it was the way to go, it made it very enjoyable. But what, did you know you would be doing this kind of film? There, interestingly, yeah. I'm gonna, not to cut you off, but there was the one talking, sort of traditional talking heads interview with his um, teacher in the States. And thank God you included that because that was so wonderful. That was from 1993. Oh really? Oh, that was archival footage. Yeah, she passed away. So that was something we found. We oh. sort of needed her voice in there because she was such a huge influence on him. What a great find. But yeah, the intention was to do it cinema verite. I felt like, um, and I always feel this way with subjects, that it's more interesting for an audience to be able to feel this person and sort of create their own impression instead of somebody saying how great Itzhak Perlman is that we know. Um, you could, you know, go to YouTube and watch a concert. Um, so for me, it was about, you know, the, it's the side of Itzhak that people don't know. Um, really capturing that and the humanity and the person behind this great music and this great spirit. Well, it really succeeds on that level because it, you come away from the film feeling like you've just hung out with this guy for two hours and that you have had lunch with him. And there's almost that voyeuristic quality when he's having dinner with Alan Alda and, and sharing this kind of friendship and the jokes and all that. You're really there with it and you come away feeling like you know him. Yeah, thanks. That was, that was the intention for sure. Yeah, it worked quite well. Um, now, when, when you how, how long were you following him around? Uh, the first shoe is that Medal of Freedom award where now you see Obama and it's just <laughs> different than what we expected. Yes. Um, and it was about a year of shooting and it was every couple weeks I was very close and in, in touch with uh, Itzhak and Toby and they would tell me if something you know was coming up and I sort of had a, a few, you know some of my own planned um, scenes. But for the most part it was a great, it was a story of great timing because it was his 70th year and he was winning all these awards, the Genesis Prize and the Medal of Freedom and so yeah, about a year later, we started editing. We kind of started editing during the process, and then we edited for a year as documentaries take forever in the edit room. That's really where you find the story. Um, and then we premiered uh, 2017 in the fall, so it was kind of two years start to finish, which is sort of miraculous for a doc. So there's only so much you can know going in, especially if you're going to take a year, year and a half to follow someone around. There's only so much you know going in about what to expect during that time. So some of these things like the, um, the Genesis Award in Israel or even the Billy Joel thing, did you know that those would be on the agenda before you went in or did those? No, it was uh, as this project came up um, and the first shoot was two weeks later and we were just starting to raise the money. It all just happened so fast that really there wasn't that much prep time, which I think for me that's sort of part of my style is sort of directing as it comes up because I think if you have too much of a plan creatively, it, it stifles you. I think you end up having to kind of undo, like whatever your intention is, is not going to end up working out. So you have to feel your subject and reflect your subject and get to know your subject. And prior to that, you're not really able to, you know, figure out your film. So that's why I said it comes together in the edit room because you sort of analyze and study your footage and kind of cherry pick from that. And what about some of the 
day in the life stuff, coming back to the Alan Alda dinner, for instance, um, was that something where he or Toby would call you and say, hey, Alan Alda's coming by tonight, they're old friends, this might be interesting to shoot? Or how did, how did those seemingly random events wind up? I mean, you? that was one of the few that you're choosing, like Billy Joel, for example, that was planned, and I was obviously going to capture that. But Alan Alda was a scene where I felt that I needed to get him in conversation with someone to sort of reveal certain things that I would get from an interview, and I was trying to avoid doing an interview. We ended up doing that interview of him on the park bench, but... I was thinking of, you know, Steven Spielberg, like who is a close friend of his that I could film. And so I kind of put, I mean, he does come over Alan Alda like every few months or whatever, but I said, let's, let's film that. So I kind of made that happen, but um, it was organic in the sense that it does actually happen. And um, for, for the bigger sequences, like when he's playing with the Israel Philharmonic and that sort of thing, what, uh, tell us about your crew during a normal day, sort of a verite shoot, and when you have to shoot something big like that, what does that do to your the number of people you have to hire and the number of cameras and all that, or some of that supplied like footage that you take from, that has, is being shot for the event that you use? Um, I try to keep my crews as small as possible, just because you don't want to be, it's already such an intrusive process, documentary filmmaking by nature, that you know the least amount of people, the more you're going to be able to like squeeze in there. Um, so I'll ideally have two camera people, one main person and maybe an assistant camera or someone else shooting the second camera, always two cameras because then you could get different angles and a sound person and myself and maybe an assistant. So pretty small. Um, but you know, you have one chance to get it. So they're stressful, those scenes when it's a concert. I think for Schindler's List. So even, even for the bigger events like Billy Joel or the Philharmonic, you're still sticking with that same crew. You're not adding people on. I'm definitely not adding people on, but I'm sticking with different crews depending on what city I'm in. We weren't traveling our crew. So in New York, I had my local camera guys, and then in Israel, I hired other people. Um, but the Billy Joel scene was was tricky because, you know, we would try to get the sound checks because that's when people can talk and sort of it's more interesting than the show usually. But he was very, like, we had 10 minutes on on stage, and then he was like, all right, you guys are out. And we actually got that one great moment that I thought, so we were lucky. This is the most techie question that I'll ask you, but I'm curious about uh, audio when you're doing a film about a musician and the, the audio, the, the, the sound, the music is very important. Um, if he's with um, either, you know, in a, in a smaller place like teaching the class or again, the bigger place like the Philharmonic, do you have to rig sound for that uh, through, the, through the room or do you work off the feed that's being mixed? Live? Yeah, ideally we'll work off the feed, but then um, again, for sound checks, we're able to put sort of a microphone on his violin or something. Um, if it's the actual concert, we're not. So we would kind of get a combination of that footage um, and then kind of cut it together like we did in that Schindler scene. That was the one scene, though, that I hired this like greatest sound person in all of California. He did 16 tracks. I knew that scene would end up being. Powerful, but all the other ones um, were in his living room or whatever. We just kind of, you know, run and gun and kind of winged it, and fortunately got good sound. Now you had met his wife Toby before you started shooting, but did you have any idea what an important role that she'd wind up playing in the film? Um, the first time I met her, I sort of knew right away that um, you know she's this amazing character and such a support to him, and he's a support to her, and they really have this very incredible union. So I knew she was going to be not only large in his life, but a large part of this film. Um, and I met her that first day that I met him, and yeah, it's amazing. They're, they're 
you know, just the way they work together was, for me, one of the most beautiful parts of this. Your editor's last name is Yum or Yum? How is it pronounced? Is Yum. It Y-U-M. <laughs> Yum. Um, have you been working with her for a long time? Tell me about the collaborative process in the editing room. Or, or if, have you guys been partnered for a while where you're really Yeah, she sync? she edited my um, last film on Matthew Barney called No Restraint that um, premiered 2007, the Berlin Film Festival, actually 2006, and was in the theaters in 2007. And uh, she really is a creative collaborator. I trust her immensely. I feel like I can start a sentence, she could finish it, and trust her instincts. And um, together we you know, are able to sort of find the story. Um, She'll work, and then I'll review it or you know, give each other ideas. But uh, she's wonderful, a huge fan. One thing that I really like is that you don't take a strictly linear approach. We actually get his biography, and we get background, and there is a great use of some archival material. But I think it's 20 minutes in before you even mention his childhood, and then we go back and see his childhood. And, and there always seem to be some moment in the current narrative that sort of opened up the door to flash back to the past. Was that something you just discovered in the editing room or did you know going in you wanted to take that approach? I think that's just part of that process of feeling your material and knowing that you don't want to just start from him as a child and do a proper biopic. You want to kind of make it a little more interesting than that. So um, it's sort of like writing in that way where there's that moment that you're kind of allowed in to go back and uh, it's, it's just finding that rhythm. Editing is so much about finding the rhythm. Have you discovered any way for to, to make deals on archival material? Because that stuff can get really expensive. I mean, the Ed Sullivan show, when I've licensed from them, it was through the roof. So were That's there any tricks or did grand. you just pay through the nose? Yeah, a lot of it's not negotiable. Some of it is negotiable. Um, you're just kind of one step at a time. I mean, that we couldn't really live without that footage. Or we could have. People have seen it. It's on YouTube, so we didn't want to use too much of it. But it was pretty precious. Um, Otherwise, yeah, you're just haggling. <laughs> you're just begging. It, it's interesting. This is, I don't know if there's even a question here, but one of the things I came away with was, you know, all of his travel. Toby mentions like the three-week tour of what is it, Japan, China, and Korea or something. And you see this guy getting on airplanes, you know, uh, in New York, just having to deal with the snow and the street and all that. I mean, I'm a big complainer. I'll complain about anything, you know, especially when you have to travel in airplanes and all that. Chazarai, I can say that because it's a Jewish movie. Um, and here's a guy who's just, you know, on top of just the day to day of an itinerary that would exhaust anybody having to do it on crutches and wheelchairs and all that and not complaining about it. Just, I mean, that's his life. Yeah. And I feel like we captured a very honest portrait. I don't, I don't, he doesn't really complain that much. I mean, he does. He certainly, as his daughter was saying, there's certain things he'll complain about and certain things that, that he won't. I think he picks and chooses his battles. This is another neither here nor there thing, but I love that we, <laughs> you catch him telling the Pushkin joke twice. <laughs> like that's his favorite, you know, default joke that's when a very everyone. conscious editorial yeah. choice. Yeah. Stolen it since I saw it. Um, <laughs> let me ask you one other thing. When you're you, and then we're going to open it up to questions. When, when you're doing a more again conventional documentary, let's say a biography of somebody's life, and if they're deceased, you know your story is there. And whether you you do it in a linear fashion or jump around, you you know what the story is, and you know that editorially, 
what you're going to include are the things that tell the person's life and then the life comes to an end. Um, here, when you're doing a verite documentary and what informs your edi editorial decisions are a bit different because you could have a scene again where he's teaching the class and you've got to figure out how much do I use of this before it gets boring or before you know we need to move on to something else. And, and, and for any scene, it seems like you just have to rely on your gut instinct as to when the scene has played out and also overall the arc of the film when you've come to the end of the film. Can you talk about that yeah, I, I think it's sort of that magic moment that you just connect to emotionally. For example, that one scene of him teaching the class, we call it the listening scene, where he's um, playing music for his students and sort of showing them how to listen. It was a shoot that they had told me was happening like the day before. It was out in the Hamptons, and it was they have a house out there, and that's where the school is. And it was really probably out of my entire career, like the worst, most stressful shoot because I didn't have the camera and the camera guy wasn't around and ended up capturing it. And I literally brought on another editor for that scene because I was like, I'm not showing this talent. And I brought on this other editor and we put this little scene together and then and then brought it into the bigger movie and gave it to my editor because it was really messy. But it ended up working out. I think it's my favorite scene in the movie. But to answer your question, it's... Um, you know, it's something where, you know, he's, he's, I think he had tears in his eyes at that point and he's responding so much to the music and you just feel at that moment, you know that, you know, music means so much to him and, and at that moment the audience is able to see that and the students and they're all um, responding so well to it. And so once I got that, I kind of knew I had it, but then you want to get more and it's, it's almost like when you do an interview, the most interesting part is when someone's going off on a tangent, you know, instead of interrupting them, you're just like, keep going on that tangent because that's when you're going to get the most interesting material. Um, so you want to overshoot a little bit, but it was very much instinct. Um, and the camera loves its act, so it wasn't hard to get great material. And, you know, neither him or I have the patience to do eight-hour shoots. And, you know, I'm in his kitchen, and it's like, I don't want to be here for more than 30 minutes, and then I want to be out of his way. As I said, it's this intrusive process. So... I think that I, you know, maybe that's one of my skills is knowing how to negotiate that balance of sort of being in the way, but being out of the way at the same time or getting out of the way quickly. Um, so they often say when they've done Q&As with me, like that it was pretty seamless for them, which is nice. And, you know, I, I just kind of picked and choose what I thought would be good and I, and I got it. So there is a moment in the film among many moments that I loved, but one thing that really touched me and I'm sure it got to everybody here was the discussion during the, the Q&A that they did with the other moderator about the importance of art and why it's critical. And he was talking about how art is always the first thing to get cut from school curriculums, curriculums and that sort of thing. And, and Toby especially is very articulate about what, what, how it separates us from, that's what separates us from monkeys, from everybody. Yeah. And, yeah, and also the talk too. about driving there and hearing the, um, uh, the opera on the radio and how he was almost gotten in an accident. He was so moved by it. She said, that's what it's about. And, yes. it's and you see their relationship in that scene too, yeah. just how much they have in common. That's yeah, that was a beautiful moment. But again, that was, that was at Princeton and there were so many great lines and it was in the edit room. It's just whittling it down to like the essentials and just trying to have nothing gratuitous and keeping that rhythm going so that, you know, people aren't bored. And uh, for those who, for your friends who didn't get here tonight, it's going to be on American Masters. On Sunday night, yes, it premieres. It was already, it had a theatrical release of 200 theaters around the country, and Sunday it premieres on PBS. Yeah, 10 o'clock 
LA, 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time as well. Great. Well, thank you everybody for coming out on a school night. And thank you. Thank you so much. Seeing it on the big screen. Allison Chernick. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure. Also an amazing documentarian. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from the DGA's documentary series screenings, check out episode 152, which features director Eugene Jarecki discussing his documentary, The King, with director Marilyn Agrello. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, you can subscribe to keep up to date on the very latest discussions from our Guild members. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.